This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Today is Wednesday, September 25th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and with my co-host, our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Good morning. It is a good morning. We drove together to get here a little yeah. bit early, and it was a beautiful fall morning. Yeah, so. we got to see the sun come up, so I'm not complaining. All right, who's our guest today? Our guest today is R. York Moore, who serves as National Evangelist for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. He's the author of Do Something Beautiful, The Story of Everything, and A Guide to Your Place in It, Growing Your Faith by Giving It Away, and Making All Things New, God's Dream for Global Justice. Welcome, York. Thanks for having me. York, I have to say, you know, we were talking before we started recording that you live in Michigan, and I've always been very jealous, but also curious that Michigan gets to consider itself Eastern time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we get a lot of questions on that. <laughs> I think they're worthy, okay? Like, you guys just get way more sunshine in the evenings than all the rest of us do, especially like being in Chicago is being like on the worst side of it since they're so close together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so I hope you're living it up. Especially this time of year when it's still nice and sunny and warm. In February, we pay our price. So Okay, I'll, I'll take some small comfort in that. <laughs> well, let's get into what we're going to talk about today and why we have you on the show. Most Friday nights during the school year, a group of Wheaton College students come together to take the train to downtown Chicago. Their purpose? To share the gospel with the people they meet that night in the city. Last year, members of the Chicago Evangelism team traveled to Millennium Park, home to one of the city's most public and popular attractions, the Bean. According to their lawsuit that the students ended up filing, when students began to approach people with pamphlets, a park employee told students that they were forbidden from doing so. Similarly, when one student began preaching, they were told that they were breaking a Chicago ordinance. So last week, four of these students sued the city of Chicago, alleging that the park rules improperly restricted their freedom. I know this is going to be a little bit wonky, but I'm going to try to explain some of these rules that Chicago has put into effect as of, I believe, springtime this year. So earlier this year, city officials divided Millennium Park into 11 rooms or sections. And in all but one of these 11 rooms, the park banned the public from, quote, the making of speeches and passing out of written communications. That effectively means that the part where the bean is actually at is one of the places where evangelism or the making of speeches and passing out of written communications is restricted. I'm going to read a couple lines from the plaintiff's attorney. His name is John Mock, and this is what he told the Chicago Tribune. He said, The Bean is one of the highest tourist attractions in the United States. That's where you want to get your message out. And he also said, We think this lawsuit is as much about our clients as it is the right of the public to receive literature and receive speeches. Public park and sidewalks are the traditional places and the only places where you can freely communicate, and now they want to take that away. So this week on Quick 
lesson, we wanted to talk about evangelism in public spaces, which I think might elicit some strong reactions from some of us in the room. But we are ready for it. Mark, let us get a gut check from you and then me about how you feel about this whole situation that's going on right now. As usual, I was of mixed mind and emotion. I do think Christians, among other religious groups, should have the right to share their message in public spaces. But I have to admit that when I'm in a public space and I'm approached by a religious person, a Christian or a Muslim or a, back in the day, Hare Krishna, I just find it really annoying. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what to think about this thing. And I'm hoping uh, this conversation will help me come to some resolution on that. Yeah, I mean, I think we can choose to decide to not only pick on religious groups in the situation, but we have all been accosted by a young person working for a nonprofit or or political speeches, you know, mm-hmm. Marxists go out there and do their thing, etc. I also feel a little bit torn on this. I was in Union Square a couple weeks ago in New York City, and there was someone who was reading the Book of Revelation from a microphone. Oh, there you go. And a, you know, they had a speaker there. I personally actually wasn't really bothered by that. I was like, oh, they're reading the Book of Revelation. I will just carry on. And no one else really seemed that affected or bothered either. Everyone else was like skateboarding, probably smoking yeah. pot or something. I think in an urban context, there is some expectation that this is the sort of thing that happens. So you, if you're not interested, you just you just tune it out and you keep moving and you assume that's part of city life. I don't know. So there's like the speech element. Then there's like the pamphlet element, right? So the speech thing, you can kind of just ignore to some degree. The pamphlet one can sometimes be a little bit more intrusive to have someone come that's up and point. talk to you. Because yeah. you specifically usually have to say no thanks. So for people who have not been to downtown Chicago before, the Bean is officially known as Cloudgate. No one calls it that. Don't oh, call it that. Okay. <laughs> and it looks like a giant bean that's also a mirror and people like to take pictures in front of it. It's very, it's a really cool piece of public art that is not even that old in Chicago, but has drawn a lot of people to it. And I think people just enjoy going to it and looking at it. Certainly. Around the time that these students actually were complaining about it. It's interesting. The Bean actually has Christmas carols that they do every Friday night in December. And so I'm assuming that these students came up and did their thing shortly after they had a choir that or the, the city like brings these choirs and then they sing like an hour of Christmas songs. And I try to go to it at least once a year because it's really nice. I just say that to say like it is a meeting place and it's extremely popular and lots of people go there every single year. Just to give some people some clarification about that. So York, when you heard this story, what went through your mind and your head? First of all, we, we need to give thanks, I think, for these brave women and men who are obviously doing something that's increasingly socially unacceptable, something that is uncomfortable both for the person who's proclaiming as well as the one who is willing to hear. Think about at least in our city Christian fellowship, we're in 172 countries. People with my same business card are proclaiming the gospel really at their own peril. In places like Nigeria, all throughout China, people are paying a very high price for doing evangelism, which is one of the core aspects of the Christian faith. And so these these Wheaton students that are, that are doing this, this is a complex issue, and we'll press into all of the complexities, I'm sure, on our, our time here today. But the reality is that we have to at least recognize the courage that it takes to actually get on that train and show up at the beam and approach people. We have to also ask ourselves, what would motivate someone to actually do something that is so socially unacceptable at their own social peril, at their the cost of their own cost? Why would somebody be so motivated to do something like that with their valuable time? Good reminder. That's very good. When I was younger, I did four spiritual laws uh, on the beach with people, and I do remember being fairly intimidated by doing that. So it is is not easy. 
No, not at all. In fact, I grew, I grew up as an atheist. We were homeless on the streets of Detroit for much of our childhood. We grew up not as your garden variety atheists. In fact, we had a sign on the front of our home when we weren't homeless. It said the Moors, the atheists. And we had a barrel on the side, a barrel on the side of our house for burning, for burning Bibles. So when I went to the greatest university in America, the University of Michigan, okay. Go Blue, my, my nickname on campus in my fraternity was Satan because I persecuted Christians and wrote papers against Christians. And then I became one which can be a topic for another time. But when I became a Christian, I immediately and intuitively began to do this same kind of activity. Now, I didn't know that it was called evangelism, to be quite honest with you. And in fact, in those early days, I would say that I had more evangelism victims than than people that I was trying to love into the kingdom. But all I knew was that I had this radical experience with the God of the universe. He revealed himself to me. He was real. And I had experienced his love, and I wanted everyone around me to know that same experience. And over the course of time, I did the same thing as you, the four spiritual laws and all kinds of things. And since then, I've I've created some new ways to actually share the gospel. But the reality is, no matter what the mode or method is, evangelism is always risky business. And it's always, there's always an element of discomfort, both for good reasons and for bad reasons. And so my hat's off to these Wheaton students. To the credit of the reporter for the Tribune that was covering this story, I thought that they did a good job, including the rationale that these particular young people had in wanting to share the gospel. You know, someone even mentioned in there that they wanted to share God's message after going through personal trauma, which included the death of their mother. So it it didn't just suggest that they were trying to push an agenda for the sake of pushing an agenda. Having said all that, and I'm glad that you said all that because it's extremely important and relevant to this particular discussion, what are your thoughts about public evangelism? And what 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 are your own thoughts? Or evangelism in public spaces. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good I mean, the environment is certainly different today than it was. I became a Christian 30 years ago, and the environment is certainly different. Our expectations about what is socially acceptable have definitely changed. I'll just say, first of all, before we get into the issue, that on a personal level, there's really no other spiritual discipline in my life that is similar to the proclamation of the gospel, that it does something in me in terms of my conviction and commitment to the larger kingdom of God. I can read my Bible privately. I can pray privately. I can even fellowship with other non-Christians somewhat privately, but the proclamation of the gospel, whether it's done between two individuals or if it's done, I've spoken to 90,000 people before, and it doesn't matter. In every single one of those instances, there is a spiritual transaction that happens that is unlike any other aspect of our Christian faith. Furthermore, I'd say that the public proclamation of the gospel, like these Wheaton students are involved in, does something different than private evangelism, right? We can share our faith individually with our neighbors and our co-workers and our relatives, and we should do that. That should be the the mainstay of our evangelistic activity. But when we proclaim the gospel, we're actually doing more than just passing along information. There's a spiritual transaction where we're actually violating the, what I would consider to be the, the laws of the spirit realm. So if we live in reality in a world that is governed by all kinds of principalities and powers that are at work against the expansion of the kingdom of God, the proclamation of the gospel actually steps over that line. And it does so in a symbolic way, in a way that's very meaningful and effective. I mean, I've seen tens of thousands of people come to faith in Jesus through my preaching ministry. But in reality, even if none of that were to happen, when we proclaim the gospel, what we're actually saying is that there isn't a place on earth, there isn't a person in the in this realm that 
doesn't actually belong to God, that they owe their very breath to him, that the places where they're walking, even places that are precious places like the bean, actually belong to the Lord of the universe. And so that's what public proclamation does. But I do think as we get into this issue, the environment is incredibly complex. And this issue seems simple at, at the beginning, right? So if you take the Christian perspective, the classic Christian perspective, we should be, be able to preach the gospel wherever and where, whenever we like. I, I think it's a little bit more complex than that, particularly if we consider what bad evangelism does to the public perception of Christianity and Christians, right? And so I think there are more serious concerns than whether or not we get to preach the gospel in one part of a park or another. And here are a couple of my, my major concerns. First of all, I think we're actually seeing the normalization of what I would consider to be a secularized proselytization. And by that, I mean evangelism isn't uniquely the domain of Christianity, right? So now you've, you've mentioned being approached by Muslims. I've done a lot of Muslim evangelism. I've never been approached publicly by a Muslim. I've never been publicly approached by somebody, say, of the Baha'i faith or, you know, back in the day there were Christianists. But by and large, Evangelism has been the domain of evangelical Christianity, public proclamation, that is, for a very long time until recently. And now what we actually see is people tend to associate proselytization with big tech companies or somebody trying to sell you a credit card. I was recently at a... a, a at the airport and, and somebody was trying to sell me a credit card. To me, that's a form of proselytization. And so it's no longer unique. We just don't associate it with the Christian church anymore, right? And so we have this great capitulation of evangelistic responsibility. And what that has done, it's created an environment where the general public no longer expect to be evangelized. And so when we go to a place like, uh, like the Bean or, or the Diag at the University of Michigan, Go Blue, and we see the public proclamation of the gospel, it's jarring. There's something unusual and out of place about it, and it causes us to recoil in a way that it would never have done, say, 10, 20, even, uh, even maybe even five years ago. You go to other parts of the, of the world, the public proclamation of the gospel is normal. It's on every street corner, but in America, it's fallen on hard times. And so the last thing I'll say is that there's this, this growing perception that evangelism and missions in general is an expression of an injustice. I do think the way in which we practice evangelism will either accelerate that perception or it will actually help to heal the misperception of what the gospel is and what it does. I wonder if part of it is the my reaction against that, public evangelism, even though I'm a believer and believe that people should hear the gospel. I wonder if part of it has to do with a, our sa- being saturated in a market-driven economy. That is to say, wherever we go, people are trying to sell us something. Even the Southwest, if I go through the airport at Midway, the Southwest people are trying to sell us their credit card. I see it on the billboards. I see it in people wanting to sell me this, that, and the other thing. And then I'm just so tired of people trying to sell me something. Is that part of the phenomenon, too, that why people might react? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I watch a lot of CNBC business news, and big tech companies have a position that would be on par with an executive vice president of operations or the COO. They call that person an evangelist, literally. That is on their business card. They are an evangelist for the company. And so there is this kind of normalization of the role not just of persuasion, but of acquisition, of proselytization, right, When in a secular way that has soured the, per, the public's perception. And we see it in, in many ways, but when we see it associated with religious views, it's jarring because uh, we've, we've, we've given up on the public proclamation of the gospel largely in the United States. I echo Mark's fatigue at just being marketed to all the time. And I, and I wonder about that 
I don't know. I, I thought it was interesting, for instance, at this particular situation in the bean, right, where they said that you could engage in these particular activities in one section of the park, essentially saying that they wanted the, the park in some ways to be a space where people would have to kind of like opt into that rather than have it interrupt where they were. Your to your mind too, do we just have different assumptions about the demands of public spaces. I know Mark and I were having a conversation here earlier about just our own norms about whether or not our public spaces should just reflect our living rooms and be places that are like uninterrupted havens. And we've kind of just like taken those assumptions and thought, oh, yes, every time we go out to the city of Chicago, which obviously is not our living room, we nevertheless haven't necessarily adopted a sense of like, yeah, exactly. Like stuff is going to happen that is going to be more dynamic and out of our control than we might feel comfortable with. I think that the key word there is comfort through this kind of incrementalism that we have kind of normalized, you know, whether it's a consumption of material goods or experiences, our public places are places where we, we stroll and eat ice cream, you know, watch innocuous uh, concerts that don't really challenge our worldview, right? And we've normalized that. You know, if there's anything that's true about our understanding of Gen Z, there's a lot that we don't understand about Gen Z. But one of the things that we do understand right at the beginning is that comfort is seems to be up there with the pursuit of uh, of happiness and, and freedom, right? That comfort is in some ways the god of our time, that we have a right to comfort. Well, the goal isn't comfort. M- my goal in a relationship with my wife, I'm going to tell you right now, is is not comfort. <laughs> That's what she tells of, us anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of discomfort in real and authentic relations. But here's the thing. The reality is that there isn't a place in our corporeal existence that doesn't belong to Jesus Christ. And whenever or wherever the opportunity should arise, we have to proclaim him. It doesn't matter if we're on an airplane, in a prison, a public park. But now having said that, as not to sour the public perception of Christian evangelism and the legitimate role of the evangelist in the public realm, we ought to normalize our practice of proclamation in reasonable public spaces. And in my my opinion, Millennium Park is such a reasonable place. You know, furthermore, places like the Bean are the very kinds of places that are protected under our free speech laws. And if we don't express our right to free speech in those kinds of places, the inertia around evangelism, the progression of incremental adoption around comfort is going to cause us as a society to increasingly reduce those places where the gospel is legitimately, you know, sanctioned for proclamation. And we see this in all kinds of you know, political rallies, people who are trying to exercise free speech in a, a political space are oftentimes persecuted because of the places that are allocated as legitimate, right? They're far from public spaces or far from uh, activity, right? So if the social perception and policy restrictions continue to push proclamation out of view, Christians will eventually have no choice but to pay a higher price for the proclamation, either as lawbreakers or subversives, right? We're doing, we're doing something under underground. And, and in fact, that is ex- exactly what we're starting to see in many of our university places, that our proclamation of the gospel is becoming a, a, an act of subversion. Your ar- argument's very interesting in the, in the sense that you do not ground it in freedom of speech or any other human right. You ground it in more in the sense of human need, that everybody needs to be aware that God is everywhere in the universe, and we owe our, our existence to Him. A human need, and I would say that probably more foundational to the point I'm trying to make, is the eschatological reality. In Revelation chapter 11, 15, for instance, uh, it says that there will come a day in the apocalypse where the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Christians live as if that's already come to pass. So there isn't a, a home, a school, 
a jail cell, an airplane seat that doesn't belong to that kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And when we proclaim the gospel, we're expressing our faith in that reality. We're also, as you've mentioned, expressing our, our, our belief that the person that we're sharing the gospel with matters deeply to God, that it's not just a speech act, right? In fact, Paul's very first letter in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1-4, he says, or 1-5 rather, he says, our gospel came to you not simply with words. And that's, I think, largely the problem with bad evangelism, that bad evangelism is almost always a speech act, right? It's, it, and we feel icky about it because we feel as if somebody has done something to us. And that's because it's primarily a speech act. Now, what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, our gospel didn't come simply with words, it came with power and with the Holy Spirit and from deep people of deep conviction. Now, how often can you say those four things come together in public proclamation? Not very often. And I think that's part of what we have to actually repair is a holistic expression of gospel proclamation. Another example of public evangelism is the, crusade, the classic crusade, the Billy Graham crusade. So how do you understand that? It, it's public in one sense. It's usually done in a public secular arena of some sort or stadium. On the other hand, there is an invitation to come, but no one, there's no like ticket to get in or anything. So talk about how that's different than doing it at the Bean. And those are largely the kinds of evangelistic activity that I'm more regularly engaged in. Some personal friends with Luis Palau and Nick Hall, and uh, many of us do this kind of evangelism all over the country, and, and in fact, all over the world. The, the difference is is obvious, right? That in, in the latter, we're actually inviting someone. There is a buy-in. They're saying yes. They're attending. They're sitting in the seat. There's, there's free reign, right? But when we're proclaiming the gospel publicly in public settings, People are actually expressing their buy-in simply by their proximity, right? You're free to get up and move, but by and large, this is something that is is being done in the environment that you haven't really agreed to do. And that speaks some uh, a little bit to the nature of the kind of country that we live in. There are other countries where they've agreed that that is not a legitimate expression of faith, right? We think of places like uh, Australia or even broadcasting in, in Canada, right? Canada is not a free speech country. And so there are different societal ways of perceiving legitimate expressions of faith. But even in those environments where it's illegitimate to proclaim the gospel, it would be better to obey God than, than men, you know, to, to cite the, uh, the apostles' persecution and acts. And the, di- the difference is obvious, but it doesn't mean that one is legitimate and one is illegitimate. We shouldn't just do the kind of evangelism where, because all that is, is mass privatization. If we move our evangelism into stadiums and classrooms and church buildings. We're proclaiming it in in a sense in a public way because the public is free to come. But that's very different than that line in the sand that I'm talking about that comes against the principalities and the powers of darkness and violates the assumptions of the kingdom of darkness by proclaiming the gospel in, in, a, in a public place where people are, are living life, a marketplace, a square in the book of Acts, an airplane, a park in Chicago, right? Both are needed. And one is not better than the other, but they do, they do different things. I, I've heard us discuss a little bit the legality of particular things, but another element that I'm interested in raising to the surface is the cultural norms of different places. I'm sure many of us that are familiar with anything about missions knows that there are parts of the history of missions in which missionaries really were able to effectively communicate the gospel within 
the cultural understandings of the group that they were trying to reach and other times where they really disrespected the people that they were trying to reach by violating a lot of different cultural norms. So I'm just wondering if you can talk concretely about how trying to be sensitive to culture is also part of doing evangelism well. I was just with uh, Ed Stetzer just a couple of days ago in Orlando at the Mizio Nexus Conference and he was talking about the impact of the of the death of uh, John Chow, a missionary who was killed as he tried to share the gospel with an unreached people group. And one of the things that Ed Stetzer shared during that was the great horror, not in not merely in the public perception that somebody would be so socially, he's violating a people group by propagating the gospel. But Ed also documented the horror in the church. Admissions and global evangelism have fallen on hard times in the church. And there was just as much outrage on the part of many evangelical Christians, whereas we go back and, and we look at the impact that the death of Jim Elliot had, it spawned the modern missions movement. It inspired a nation to respect Christians. It, it elevated the perception of, of Christian missions. And so what we're actually seeing, to some degree, both in the church, but certainly in the secular environment, we're seeing an emerging worldview and a social adoption that identifies Christian evangelism with oppression and injustice, right? Because some of the tenets of the Christian worldview are seen to harm people because it seeks to change them, right? So by the very nature, the assumption of proselytization is that it is good and possible to be changed. Transformation is possible. But in this this emerging worldview being seen increasingly as an instrument of oppression and injustice. And I think that's only going to accelerate, right? And so this will be particularly problematic in places like universities, where I've spent the last 25 years as a, a professional evangelist, public high schools, prisons, other controlled environments. But eventually, it will sour people's perceptions of public proclamation just in general, because it will be identified as an expression of injustice, on par with racialized hate speech, right? In fact, there are lots of people who are starting to make the argument that religious proselytization is an expression of an injustice. Well, these are very serious days, and that's why I think bringing it back to, back to these brave women and men of, of Wheaton, what they're doing is not just a speech act. They are revealing this development in our culture. Talk about a speech act. What do you mean by that? If something is a speech act, it's merely a speech act. It's, there's merely a verbal transaction, right? So very frequently we experience this when we turn on the news. There's no two-way communication. There's no interaction. I'm merely being influenced by the speech act of the broadcaster. And the gospel was never intended to be merely a speech act. When Paul said our gospel came to you not simply with words, and that's one of the reasons why I really dislike that quote, you know, if preach the gospel and use words when necessary. It's a terrible quote. There's no gospel proclamation that isn't also a speech act, but it can never merely be a speech act. When Paul says our gospel came to you not simply with words, he's actually exalting the primacy of the verbal proclamation of the gospel. But it's hollow and illegitimate when it is merely a speech act. And that's why there are these other expressions that it comes with power, it comes with the Holy Spirit, it comes from people of deep conviction. I I did want to just go back to the the culture question, though, because, again, I'm just— I, I would say that if you're looking at good faith for people who are, are nervous about this type of stuff, they really would feel strongly that there are times where if the gospel, if God's love, a message of God's love is verbally communicated, but not necessarily done so in a way that reinforces, I don't know, some sort of love in there. You know, I, I think we can all agree that someone like standing up during a wedding and screaming, God loves you, is not necessarily a way that will most firmly back that 
proclamation. <laughs> that's a very extreme example, right? But 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 there are places where if those norms are violated, that's all we're going to be paying attention to. Where it's going to be such a distracting thing that's happening that it, you'll you'll not be able to focus on what the salvation message is that's being communicated or what part of nature of God is being revealed in that act. You'll only be able to say, "Wow, I cannot believe that they've." done that. And maybe like the harshest examples of that are like when violence is used. I'm not saying that, that, but like that's usually a way that a group is trying to communicate something, right? Is when they use violence. And most of the time we're like, I don't really care what your message is. You like thought that was okay to shoot these people or set off this bomb, right? And most of us would say that is a completely unacceptable way to do that. But there are other ways that can feel also disruptive and make us really uncomfortable to the point that we can't do that. And I'm curious about how you're challenging Christians, I guess, to be sensitive about those those liminal spaces. There's a word that isn't very common in the United States. It's a, the word polarity. In the Western mind, we are linear thinkers. There's a zero-sum assumption with every question that there are winners and losers, and one loss has to come at uh, somebody else's victory. In Eastern thinking, however, everything is about balance, and it is about polarity. And so a polarity is a tension that exists between two durable poles that is never actually supposed to be resolved. So some tension should never be resolved. Whereas in the Western mind, we think every every point of tension, every point of discomfort, every problem has to be resolved with a solution. And the gospel is full of polarities that are supposed to be lived into. Males and females living in community together, sharing leadership. The gospel and the expression of the kingdom. For 17 years, I've done uh, anti-trafficking work all across the United States, working with state attorney general's offices and Fortune 50 companies and faith leaders all around the country. We've done these these campaigns. We've also talked about Jesus. We've never used trafficking as a issue to proclaim the gospel. Uh, That would be manipulation. But we've never just talked about trafficking devoid of the spiritual realities of our our sin and brokenness. And over the course of the 17 years that we've done these campaigns around the country, we've saw thousands and thousands of students come to faith in Jesus, but we've also doubled the bed capacity on a state level and helped state lawmakers pass state laws and increase legacy funding for frontline NGOs and all kinds of things. We've created for-profit, non-profit organizations through these campaigns. And so the results are incredible. But I share that illustration because what it demonstrates is the power of polarity, right? When we have an either-or, zero-sum game, we never have a full expression of the gospel. That's why in the very first book that Paul wrote, in the very first chapter, he says our gospel came not only with words. And what he does for us, and this is how the Western mind reads this verse, it didn't come with words, but it came with power of the Holy Spirit and with people of deep conviction. And we see that as a list of four things. That's not how Paul meant it. It's two polarity dyads, right? When the gospel comes, it comes with words and power. There's the polarity. And those two things are always to live in a symbiotic relationship. That when we when we make evangelism simply about words, and devoid of power, expressions of kingdom power, like increasing bed capacity for trafficking victims and and mobilizing NGOs to fight human trafficking, which in my mind is the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world. But he gives us this second polarity dyad that it actually is rooted in divine power in the Holy Spirit and delivered through people of deep conviction. And the word there for conviction is a person who's all in. And when I think about these Wheaton students, these are students that are expressing a small part of what it means to be all in. These are women and men of deep conviction who are willing to give up the God of their comfort for the sake of the lost. And that is something to be admired and emulated, not to be judged. 
This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. I think you've given me pause for thought in terms of this notion of one of, in a sense, one of our jobs as Christians is to make people feel uncomfortable at the appropriate moment. I think back to an incident in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is, uh, he's at a synagogue on a Sabbath, and there's a man with a withered hand in the in the synagogue, and there are Pharisees in the synagogue whom he knows are, try, are, are skeptically looking at his message and his his, his deeds. And the man does not ask to be healed. This is what's really interesting. But Jesus, seeing the hardness of their hearts, he calls the man forward. He deliberately provokes the Pharisees during a worship service. He deliberately makes them and everyone else feel uncomfortable by violating what they perceive to be a Sabbath law. So it's very much a part of Jesus' ministry to make, that's just one example of the times he made people feel uncomfortable for, for this notion that you're talking about, that God claims every corner of the universe is his own. In fact, if you, if you read the gospel, almost every story of Jesus is what, what my kids would call cringy. There's a cringe nature to the stories of Jesus. He was so disruptive and created such discomfort. Now, he's the God of the universe, right? And we're, and we're not. And that's why I do think we, we need to think carefully about about how we're practicing evangelism. University Christian Fellowship has been doing evangelism for 80 years now in the U.S. We came here 80 years ago, and we've never seen so many students come to faith as we're seeing now. And it is like a revival. In fact, there are 150 organizations have come together under the banner of every campus for a great new move of God in America because we're seeing just a massive influx of students and we're seeing the gospel go forward in some powerful ways. One of the ways that we've actually done pro- public proclamation in the U.S. through diversity is through the creation of what we call proxy stations. So I, I came back from a conference, oh, about uh, 12 years ago. At this conference, there was a guy who had uh, gave, given a message where he said that we, we should no longer be proclaiming the gospel publicly, that the public preaching of the gospel should never be a part of the Christian expression any longer in the United States. And I was mad. And so I came back and I said, for 2,000 years, the public proclamation of the gospel has, has saved sinners, it has reached souls, it has restored people, and given them new hope and new life. But in his defense, his caricature of what public proclamation was, was exactly what we're talking about here today. It was a speech act that had no place in a public expression of faith. My team got together and we created what we now call proxy stations, which are these interactive art stations that use a person's encounter with a beautiful piece of art to help them experience the heart of God for them and for the world around them. And there are many different different versions of these. We have dozens and dozens of them now all, all around the United States, and we've used them overseas. But I'll tell you, when you see a group of college students line up to be evangelized— 
because of this method, it gives you hope for the public proclamation of the gospel. In fact, one student came up and he said, you know what, I know what you're doing here. I don't like it, but this thing is so cool. I have to do it. Yeah. Now that's good evangelism. And the church should hold out for good evangelism. Can you talk a little bit more and specifically about how this experience that you've created works? Again, there are many different versions of it, but the idea would be basically the same. You'd set up in a common area. A lot of times we have to have permitting beforehand. And these art stations will have about three or four different stages. And so there's a process to it. So this is there's some theory in terms of adult learning theory that we've de- we've developed and integrated into this. But the initial approach would be a simple question asking if a person has opportunity or a moment to respond to a series of questions. And so there's that initial buy-in. And the guide will ask them something like, since we're talking about human trafficking, we've done a lot of these around trafficking, we'd ask them about their level of awareness about, say, for instance, child prostitution. And instead of merely telling us their answer verbally, we have ways so that they can actually indicate their level of awareness. We'll give them ribbons to pin on a piece of art or dollars to pin on a mattress or a marker to write out a sentence or two reflecting their knowledge. And so there's a way in which they enter into the process experientially. And then we'll ask them a question like, do you think there are any spiritual dimensions to human trafficking? Or is this simply a public health crisis? Or is it a a crisis of law? And so we we migrate the conversation into just kind of a general overview of spiritual uh, spiritual issues. And we'll bring in a verse of scripture. We'll talk about God's love for the poor or the marginalized or the oppressed and how Jesus saw people and had compassion on them. And then we'll ask them if they would be interested in hearing about how the spirituality of Jesus actually provides real life solutions for issues like trafficking. And if they agree to that, we, we share that with them. And almost always, if they've gone through the first two or three steps, they, they agree to do the fourth step. And there's no bait and switch. We tell them up front, we're a Christian organization. We tell them up front, we're talking about the role of spirituality in an issue like trafficking or these kinds of things. And the response has been incredible. When you're honest with people, you're not trying to trick them. You're not trying to, you know, hoist something upon them. And you treat them like free-thinking adults, by and large, people are interested in having an interaction, even if there's discomfort involved. And again, we have seen literally thousands of students pray to receive Jesus through these proxy stations. We do them in Greek houses, and we do them in marketplace thoroughfares like the Diag at the University of Michigan. We'll do them in dorms and the cafeterias. Almost never is there any kind of pushback that you would normally associate with the guy in the middle of the Diag screaming his head off. Now, Having said that, I would hate to see that kind of evangelism go. But the problem is we've only seen, almost always, we've only seen that done poorly from cults and from, from, from wackos who convolute the gospel with all kinds of problematic theology. But what these Wheaton students are doing is a beautiful expression of the proclamation of the gospel. One thing I found really interesting about what you shared right there is the level of creativity and thoughtfulness and research that goes into creating a production like that. And I'm curious if you can just tell us a little bit about like why you see innovation and evangelism as really important things to team up together. We're in a different environment. We're going to be wise and persuasive. We have to do so in a way that 
that's socially palatable. There's a danger in that, right, that we water down our gospel, that we're not people of great passion and conviction, and the great revivalists fought against that, people like Ravenhill and others. But I do think the time is past now for us to just assume that we can perform simple speech acts and have any kind of impact on the public. If we're going to win a willing ear, we need to be persuasive. And that means thinking critically and creatively about the context that we're ministering in, how to actually draw people's attention rather than turn them away. If all we're doing is turning away people from hearing, the chances are zero that they will actually hear God's love and, and respond to God's love, right? And so we have to be persuasive. I love one of my heroes of the faith is a, a guy out of Yale named Marisolov Wolf. And Wolf, in his book, A Public Faith, talks about uh, Christianity in a time of marginalization and how really the best foot forward when we are an oppressed minority, which I think is coming. We're not there yet, but I, I do think that legitimate convictional Christianity is approaching a time where we're going to be a, a persecuted minority. The, our best foot forward is going to be through commitment to social good. So could we not partner with our political leaders, our, our business leaders, our nonprofit leaders to address things like the growing uh, poverty in our urban centers, undocumented persons and their needs, you know, issues of creation care and fighting human trafficking. Now, there are lots and lots of conservative Christians that see those things as a distraction from the gospel. And I would simply go back to that Revelation eleven fifteen verse and say that there isn't a place in this world that doesn't belong to Jesus. There isn't a person that he doesn't care for. And that people who are suffering, whether it's from poverty or for, from coercion or mass incarceration, people who are suffering at the expense of or because of systems of injustice, those are people who are suffering because of the brokenness of, the, of this world. And the gospel is good news, not simply for the hell to come. It's good news for the hell that we're in right now. And this is the last thing I'll say about it. Is that, you know, when I was a, an impoverished, young, African-American boy living homeless on the streets of Detroit, I needed a gospel that came with not just words, but also with power. I needed to be saved from the hell that I was in, not just the hell to come. And that's why thinking creatively, coming up with, with solutions that actually evoke a healthy cognitive dissonance in the public, right, that evoke them to consider Jesus rather than just, uh, you know, marginalize proclamation are going to be increasingly important. We have to be creative because the environment has changed. Well, thank you so much, York, for sharing all of that with us. There's a lot of really good food for thought. You felt uncomfortable listening to us. York would like you to know that is the point of this podcast. <laughs> Mark? No, <laughs> no, no. I thought it was yeah. I thought it was great. It's, it's a, one of the podcasts where it forced me to reconsider some of the things I've been thinking. So I appreciate that, York. Excellent. Yeah, podcast listeners, we're not about preaching to the choir here. Exactly. (laughs) But if you still feel like we're wrong anyway, you can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Please feel free to do so. You can also go on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And we have our October 2019 issue out currently. There is a picture of a building and the building is gray and the background is gray. All right, Mark, tell me, tell people a little bit who may be confused what that means. Yeah, I think it's supposed to represent a classic orphanage in the majority world. And the headline reads, don't paint the orphanage. And it's basically 
looking at a discussion of mission trips, especially church mission trips, youth group mission trips, in a sense, the ambivalent nature of them that people have been feeling for some time. This notion that you, for a couple weeks or a week, you go to a place that's more impoverished, you, you paint the orphanage, you meet with some of the uh, orphan kids, and then you leave. Is that really an effective way to do mission work? Most people that today say no, and this article talks about other ways of actually exposing yourself to world need like that, but in a way that might be more helpful in the long run. So I read it with great interest because when I was a youth pastor back in the day, we did, we, I was in actually in Mexico City at a fairly wealthy church, and we actually did that very thing. We went to orphanages in the rural areas of Mexico and lived with the orphans for a week. I will say it was an extraordinarily good experience for my youth. So I still see some value in that, but I think the article expands that notion to help us think of different ways of doing that that can help us be, as North Americans, be more sensitive to the needs of the world, but also actually do things that have a greater impact than simply getting a fresh coat of paint on an orphanage. Maybe the seventh fresh coat of paint that it received. Exactly. That's one of the issues. Exactly. (laughs) And we've all heard stories of, yeah, groups, churches or local like Habitat for Humanity. My daughter worked there in Costa Rica. How about sometimes they would have to find work for these groups that came down. They didn't really need them. But the the educational part for the North American group is still really important. We got to figure out how to do that. And relational part. And do, do other things as well. Well, guys, We may even talk about it on a future show. Stay tuned. So if you would like to read the article, though, in the meantime, you can go to orderct.com slash podcast, orderct.com slash podcast, and that will give you the ability to read this article in print or online. All right, now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Mark Galley, please do. Do something a little different than I normally do, which is between mechanical work, fly fishing, and grandchildren. So I woke one morning feeling particularly uncomfortable with the state of my soul. And it was just really interesting how the Lord, in a sense, met me that day. It was a Sunday morning and I I went to church and it seemed like the whole theme of the service was God's reaching out to the to the sinner and his mercy. And it was just like, well, I needed that. (laughs) And it was just a really nice, put a nice new cast on the whole day instead of just beating myself for not being the person I think God's called me to be, to be where he kind of knows that already and that he's working with you. He's patient with you and he'll, he'll get you there. My favorite thing about church is when the message was obviously meant for you. Exactly. (laughs) I I sometimes go up to the pastor and said, I don't think it's fair that you just preach to me. You should preach a sermon that applies to everybody. (laughs) All right, Mark, you send out a newsletter that is actually for 20,000 people. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, It's called the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report. You can find it at ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report. I link to stories, some of which I try to make people feel uncomfortable. That's Mark's (laughs) spiritual gift. There you go. Others and just pieces that give us an insight into the state of our culture that we live in and some of the challenges of living and preaching the gospel in that. I enjoy doing it and I gather that a lot of people uh, get a lot out of it. Awesome. All right, York, go ahead. I'm pretty excited. I finally finished the final touches on my my next book. I've written three books, but the next book is going to be very different. It was approached by Dr. Gary Chapman, who's the author of the Five Love Languages, to write a book with him that will come out uh, late spring, early summer next year. This is a 
simple book that takes the love languages and asks the question, is there a heart cry, a single question that drives a person with, say, the love language of gifts, which I believe that they're, they're striving to feel as if their, their life has worth. I'm a words of affirmation guy. And so we love to know that we're seen, that people are seeing us. And so I've written a simple book, give to your Uber driver, your hairstylist, your, your mother-in-law. Through their love language, they can understand the good news of the gospel. So I'm, I'm super excited that I'm, first of all, I'm done with the book. We're in field testing right now, and it seems to be being received really, really well, particularly amongst non-churched, non-Christians, and so that's pretty exciting. That book is just an ama- his uh, insights into the five love languages. Man, that has just been going on for years and years now, and it's still a bestseller, and it's just been so helpful to, for people. It's just part of the vocabulary of our world now. You, in fact, heard a friend of mine say that there's only three things people uh, uh, people want from Christians nowadays, and that's uh, Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, and the five love languages. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I'm happy to be uh, at least uh, in association with one of them. But this book, is it's called This Changes Everything. It's a book that you can read in an hour or less. It's a very simple book that you can give to people and, and help them have a relationship with God. Is the book writing process fun for you or is it excruciating? Where do you fall on that? No, I hate it. I'm a speaker with a laptop. And so my, my preference is to is to speak. And the books are just a necessary evil to do that. So. <laughs> necessary <Yeah>. evil. <laughs> you might, although you should realize some of the world's greatest writers felt that way. Uh, Robert, Lu- My favorite quote of, about writing comes from Robert Louis Stevenson. I love having written. Yes, that's exactly right. I love having written. <laughs> and that's why it's such a great day, because I have written and I'm all done now. So, Can you tell people what your website is and where they can find you online, on social media? The website is tellthestory.net. Tellthestory.net. If you Google York Moore, that uh, should be the first thing that pops up uh, on their feed. And then I'm easy to find on all social media. It's just at York Moore. Since we are kind of sharing spiritual situations, I guess, for precious moments this week, I was also feeling angsty the other night when I was in Las Vegas of all places. And so I like really am not great at praying by myself. I find it extremely challenging. It's way easier for me to pray with other people. But if I do have to pray by myself, what I normally do is I like I turn the recorder on on my phone because it makes me feel like I'm less praying by myself. And oh, there's like some level of accountability there. I used to, I did this for Lent a couple years ago where I was like, okay, I'm going to pray for 10 minutes a day. And I would just turn the recorder on and like, it was a way to like make sure I was praying that much. So anyway, I prayed for like 25 minutes walking down the Las Vegas Strip. It was great. I was really glad that I did that. I felt so much better. After I did that, which is duh to anyone who has prayed when they have felt very angsty. I think most of the time you feel better, but sometimes I don't do the obvious thing in my angst. That amazing thing about the spiritual life, you often don't do the, the thing that's the most obvious thing that you should do, or you, forget, you simply forget. I mean, it was just, once again, I was watching Philippians, what is it, 4, 6 through 7, come to life, right? Be anxious in nothing. With prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds to Christ Jesus. It's still true. It's very true. I Well, I just see it show up every time I pray. I mean, I really just think it's like less about the circumstance, which in this case, it didn't necessarily resolve the circumstance and more just saying I'm not in control. Right. And then you actually feel a little bit better because it's not in your hands anymore. I'm not here to preach at all of our listeners, but prayer is good. So try it sometime. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you do listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. We appreciate everyone who does that. This podcast is produced by myself. 
and it is also produced by Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps. We will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.